So you take a full beer, right? Don't pop it. Don't pop the top on it. I know you have to buy canned beer because you're a student. You have no money. So, so you, but you can stand on a full beer can because you're compressing the, because the fluid inside uh, holds you up. You, you chug your beer, put it down on the ground, you go and it crushes like a grape. Good morning, happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Wow, got a busy Monday coming up. Um, quick reminder for those of you that are IFAST University members, we have a conference call today at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so please be there for the live call if you can. Those are always great, great questions. Uh, speaking of questions, today's Q&A is with Victor, and we covered a lot of ground in this call. A couple of main, main elements, though, was uh, the influence of body position on the table as how it uh, can change um, the perception of some of your measures and why you might see certain things in certain positions as you change position on the table. And then why do we restrict uh, relative motion to produce force and how this, this actually influences things. So I give a couple of examples that are hopefully useful under those circumstances. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put a 15-minute consultation in the subject line so we can arrange that at our mutual convenience. Um, got to run. Got a busy day. You guys have a great Monday, and I'll see you tomorrow. So the camera is rolling. The clock has started. Victor. <laughs> I've been calling you Johnny this whole time. Uh, Victor, what is your question? All right, so I've been going through uh, trying to get some expansion. My uh, anterior thorax, posterior thorax, just for my own progress. And I've noticed, like when I lay supine, now my ribs don't flare as much. What does that so mean? What does that mean? That the anterior inferior portion of my rib cage does not uh, protrude, or I guess I'm not as posteriorly tilted in the thorax as much as I was. Mm -hmm. uh, when I lay supine. Okay. So the question became why getting expansion, the upper thorax, both through the upper back and the, and the anterior thorax might help that. Um, I actually have my poor skeleton model missing a nice. leg here. There you go. I pictured this as like a lower posterior compression and anterior upper compression, almost tilting the, the whole thorax posteriorly. Okay. But that's my thought. And I just wanted to hear what you have to say about that. Okay. So so under most circumstances, what you're actually what you're actually representing is the anterior orientation in the pelvis and in the thorax. But when you lay down, there's a tipping point where there's enough mass above this point where you're you're mostly tilted forward, where everything will fall back. And so it creates this perception of of the lower rib cage being positioned anteriorly. So, so people get this confused is they say, but I have a posterior orientation. No, you don't, you have an anterior orientation. The constraint of, of the surface upon which you are, you are lying is, is creating an upward force. And so then the shape of your, your thorax 
and pelvis actually um, change its orientation to whatever degree is allowed. Now, in some cases, there's so much, <clears throat> excuse me, in some cases, there's so much compression that people don't tilt backwards on the table. And in some cases they do. And so this is one of those things that skews measurement. So, so when I talk about the usefulness of iterations and then your checks and balances between your ERs and IRs, this is where a lot of people get confused because they say, Bill, my numbers don't match. And I say, yes, they do. You just have to account for the shape change that's associated with the constraints because it's no different. It's no different than somebody actually having a true constraint change in a joint that creates a limitation in motion or, or an increase in range of motion. So like, I don't know, take like a, a, a labrum tear in a shoulder will magnify uh, range of motion in one direction and take it away in, in another, right? That would be a representation of like a constraint change that's internal mm -hmm. that we do nothing about. But basically that's what you've done. So, so, the, so the, the, that's the beauty, if you will, of the table tests is that it does create a constraint for us to make a comparison against, but you just have to know what the rules are in that regard. It's like in, in some cases, people are going to reorient themselves relative to the table. In some cases they won't. And so again, if you understand that, then there's a tremendous amount of clarity and usefulness in your, if you do, if you're one of those people that do table tests, then they become very useful because there's checks and balances throughout that, that clarify what really is going on in regards to the shape of the individual. Okay. Yeah. So on your point of like somebody might be so compressed that they don't tip posteriorly, but somebody could also be compressed, but they will tip so, posteriorly. Correct. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Okay. okay. So you're measuring traditional shoulder flexion on somebody. Okay. All right. The person that doesn't tilt back has a very significant degree of shoulder flexion limitation. So let's just say mm. if if you're using comparisons to the to the averages that they teach you in school, which are absolutely wrong, then we would say that this person, let's just say they have a hundred degrees of traditional shoulder flexion. Okay. And then you have the person that tilts backwards. Okay, uh, let me back up. So let's just say they have 100 degrees of traditional shoulder flexion. And they have about 70 degrees of traditional shoulder external rotation as you would measure on the table. Okay. Mm -hmm. Take the other person, the person that hits the table, rolls backwards. They now have a magnification of those two measures. So even though shoulder flexion may be limited to a significant degree, they might show like 150 to 180 degrees of shoulder flexion, and they'll show you 120 degrees of shoulder external rotation by traditional measures. And so what happens, and incorrectly, is these people get branded with, with that so-called uh, concept of laxity, and that doesn't happen. Right. It's just yeah. it's just an orientation on the table in this circumstance. It's not looseness anywhere. But but if, if that's the if that's the model that I've used, because it is the structural reductionist way. Right. They say, oh, anytime you get an excessive measure, because their concept is like I'm looking through this 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 singular lens. Right. I'm looking at your hip or I'm just looking at your shoulder and I'm not considering the fact that that ER and IR are systemic measures. They're not isolated to a, an area um, until, until you have the superficial compressive strategies, then they are isolated to that area. That's why the measures suck, 
right? So when I have limitation in a joint range of motion of significant degree, that's pretty indicative of that superficial compression, right? Because when I move a shoulder, everything has to move. Yeah. And that's what's, I, that's what, what's underappreciated because again, at school, they teach you like the shoulder moves this much. It's like, no, when you measure ER at this point in this way, it has this much. There are many contributors to that range of motion. It is not just because you're saying I'm measuring the shoulder doesn't mean you're measuring the shoulder. I'm sorry. You're, yeah. you're absolutely wrong, <laughs> right? You're measuring the system. Yeah. It's kind of like being called Johnny. It's just not my name. Well, that's your own damn fault. <laughs> You're the one. Your email comes to me and it says, right? It's like, come on. Fair what am I going to say? And then you you didn't correct me. That's your fault. I, that is. That is. I'm just messing. Um, so I have a perfect example of that. So I was working with my dad, right shoulder pain, racquetball for like the last 20 years. Super limited shoulder range of motion on that side. Yeah. So I'm doing like tractioning the scapula turning his head towards me getting some big breaths like trying to expand the upper back and then his er improved and then i worked to get his rib cage a little bit more i guess would be anteriorly tilted or uh, on the table so bringing his rib cage from posterior orientation more i guess flat and then his his er got worse and the old me would have been like oh man that's like in the moment i was like oh man i how why did that make it worse and then i realized what you just said it was a whole reorientation we didn't actually get we might have got some expansion in the upper back but yeah. we have to <clears throat> the whole orientation and then get the expansion there's a, there's, a, there's a there's a chance that that you just um by traditional representation is that you flexed the thorax you did not expand it posteriorly if i bend the spine forward that is not necessarily expansion yeah. Okay. You, you see what yeah, you did? So, yeah. So, well, when I, when is before, so I measured his ER, it was like maybe like 20 degrees, 30 degrees, pretty yeah. horrendous. Yeah. And then, so I just did, he was laying supine, took his right arm, tractioned it, kind of like AB duction of the scapula, turned <laughs> his head towards me, get some big yep. breaths, and yep. then his ER just dropped like yeah. to 80, 90 degrees. Cool. Yeah. And then, I, we worked on some rest for the more respiration rib cage looked a little bit more, like I said, anterally tilted or flat in the lower posterior part and his ER got worse again. And that's, I was yeah. like, okay, well might as well start here. I think, cause I think I've heard you say before, like that's kind of the first like reorient first and Always. then work on the expansion. Always reorient. Yeah, because you, you can't re reacquire all of the relative motions without reorientation because the, the orientation is caused by the superficial musculature locking segments together, right? Mm -hmm. so if they all move together, there's no relative motion there. If there's no relative motion, then there is no expansive capabilities where things have to move. They literally have to move apart to create the space. And so if they can't do that, then you're not gonna get the change. You might get, you might actually get another reorientation, which, which it, it, the whole segment turns and that sort of magnifies some of your, your ERs and IRs as well. But again, it's not the true relative motions. And the way you would know that is because you would just measure all your other stuff and you make your comparisons. You can go, well, wait a minute, that doesn't really fit. And that's how you know that you had something that, like a whole segment of the body turned, like the whole pelvis turned or the whole thorax turned 
because you get a magnification of one measure, but you don't get restoration of the others. I gotcha. Yeah, so it's like that's, a, why, there's check, that's why there's checks and balances that are built in, right? Yeah. And so we take advantage of those. That's and again, that's how you know when what what you're looking at, and you know whether your intervention actually worked. Because you know people throw these little little parties when they make these these subtle gains in motion, and all they're getting is changes in orientation, not the relative motions. If relative motion is the goal, and in many cases, yeah. when you're dealing with people that that they're dealing with with pain related issues, um, the starting point is to restore relative motions first and foremost. Mm -hmm. you eliminate all other possibilities as to as to what it may be yeah that makes sense yeah um yeah, when you were talking about relative motions this brought up another question that i've had why i might be incorrect in my thinking it seems like based on everything that i've heard you say that increasing relative motion increases yep. force production and vice versa and I'm just curious to why you cut out on me for just a second. Please repeat it. Oh, no worries. If I increase relative motions, that that would decrease force production capabilities yes. and vice versa. Yes. So I'm having a hard time understanding why that would be. Okay. <clears throat> so I live in Indianapolis. I'm going to tell you an Indianapolis story. Okay. And, and I, I know very little about racing right? The Indianapolis 500 is big here for some reason. I'm not really sure. It's probably like one of the oldest races ever, right? Anyway, so here's, here's one of the things that I did learn about these things. So, so the older cars were made out of the, the fewest number of pieces possible, right? So they were very heavy and they were, they were one piece and, and the drivers would hit the wall at high speeds, right? There's, there's accidents that happen in, in these races, right? So they would hit the wall and the cars would, would be held together. And so the driver would end up absorbing all of this force, right? So I had one, one car, one driver, basically two pieces, okay? They hit the wall, car doesn't, car doesn't collapse. Like literally these things were made out of metal and, and stuff. And then the driver absorbs. And so they had so many more injuries and deaths associated with the, with the accidents. What the cars do now is they explode. Okay. So when, so when, when the car hits, it breaks into a gajillion million pieces, right? As many pieces as it, as it can break apart into. And what this does is each one of those pieces absorbs some of the impact and spreads the impact out right? So then the driver doesn't absorb the force. The, the, all the little pieces do, okay? And so, so that's dissipating the force among many parts, okay? Mm -hmm. so, so the driver doesn't absorb it, the driver doesn't get hurt. So, so, so their survivability is increased, their, their risk of injury goes down dramatically, okay? That's relative motion. All of these little pieces represent, so each one of these pieces absorbs some of this. So it dampens all the force that the driver doesn't absorb it. You're the same way. The more moving parts you have, okay? The more moving parts you have, the more you distribute the force. And so if I distribute the force, it can't be focal enough to have any significant input. So I have to lock things together so I can produce the maximum forces. And then I release that. And then that's what allows me to demonstrate velocity. So let's go back to the car example. So those pieces go flying at hundreds of miles an hour, right? They go really fast. They, they fly apart really, really fast. 
Okay, mm-hmm. like it's like an explosion. We follow the same rules. So, so we have to compress and squeeze and limit relative motions to produce high forces. Velocity is the other end of the spectrum. We got to have lots of lots of uh, expansive capabilities available to demonstrate the velocities because they're not the same. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So I guess my confusion still is like, let's say when I'm squatting, I have like a 500 pound barbell on, on my back, and I'm going to yep. do a back squat. Yeah. So I still have to produce, well, probably more than 500 pounds to actually move the bar. Um, whether I dissipate the forces through across my whole body versus locking everything down, I still have to produce the same amount of force. So I guess my confusion is why does decreasing the relative motions and making the, the force focal help me? specifically like limiting the relative motions. Why is that beneficial? Because in my mind, I would have to produce the same amount of force anyway. Is my question make sense? But see, but but see you're, you're okay. So what direction do the forces go? If you, if you're Uh, not locked into a single piece, what direction do they go? Do they go up into the bar or they go all different directions like the exploding direction? Yeah. You see? So, so again, it's like you have to direct the force to produce the outcome that you want. Right. There's, uh, there's no way there's no way to do it if you don't lock everything into one piece. Get it. OK. Yeah, yeah that makes way more. Oh. Especially with your model with the more like fluid based physics perspective, like that makes more sense to me. Yes. Well, you, so, okay. so you you lift you lift heavy things with columns of water. OK. Always remember that. Got it. <laughs> okay. Because, because muscles can't lift them. Can you elaborate? Nope. All right. No, muscles can't do anything. They can, they can squeeze things really, really tight. Right. Okay. So hang on. Let's, let's, let's empty your guts. Your gut is now hollow. Okay. And I'm going to put that 500 pound barbell on your back. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to get crushed like a paper cup. Okay. All right. Here you go. You ever smash, you ever smash a pop can? Yeah. An empty pop can. Okay. Okay. Hang on. You ever stand on a full pop can? I have not. No. Okay. But you can. Oh, maybe I'm sorry. You're, you're a student, right? I am. I should have said beer can. So you take a full beer, right? Don't pop it. Don't pop the top on it. I know you have to buy canned beer because you're a student. You have no money. So, so you, but you can stand on a full beer can because you're compressing the, because the fluid inside holds you up. You, you chug your beer, put it down on the ground. You go, and it crushes like a grape, right? Yeah. So what, there's the difference. So what the muscles do is they squeeze, they contain the fluid in a shape that allows you to stack weight on top of it. Okay. Simple mechanics, my friend. Simple mechanics. Yeah. I'm not that smart. So I got to use this cool stuff. Right? We explain complex things pretty simply. So, uh, well, you know, you just have to drink a few beers and then, you know, you pretty much solve the world's problems. Right. <laughs> All right, man. I got to uh, cut you off. Yeah. Good questions. Uh, awesome. You're going you're gonna to help a lot of people. All right, man. Uh-huh. Two strategies to move. One plane, two strategies, expansion, compression. One plane, transverse. Good morning, happy 
Tuesday, I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, a very busy Tuesday. So we are just gonna dig straight into today's Q&A. This is with Andrew. And Andrew has some questions about internal rotation and external rotation as it's represented in my model because I look at internal and external rotation quite a bit differently than, than what would be traditionally represented. Um, the thing we want to recognize is that everything that we do is based on our helical structure and so therefore internal and external rotation have to follow suit. And so looking at these things in, in movement, especially in straight planes, um, can create a great deal of incoherence in regards to, to what we see as, as the representation. And so um, we went in depth on this. I think there was actually a really good question and turned into a really good conversation that I think is gonna help a lot of people try to understand um, a little bit more about, about how we want to produce force, how we produce space and movement. Um, so thank you, Andrew, uh, for your question. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute coaching consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so we don't delete it, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience as usual. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I'll see you tomorrow. All right, we are recording. The clock has started. Andrew, what is your question, young man? So... One of the more useful things about your way of thinking in, in my estimation is the idea that we're really only moving in one plane and that when we say flexion, extension, adduction, abduction, we're really just describing what it looks like um, rather than making a, an accurate statement about the motion of the body. Correct. So Internal and external rotation, according to the dex textbook definition, is either towards, so internal, or away, external, from midline, right? And as far as I can tell, the way you use the terms is the same, except for you're just accounting for more of the, ap the axial skeletal sort of mechanics and dynamics, and not just focusing on what's happening at the appendicular skeleton. So it seems that you're using the term the same way, but you're just accounting for more variables. And so my first mini question is, <clears throat> is that correct that you're still using towards and away from midline as the weight? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> there we go. There we go. There we go. It, 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 it'll look that way. It will okay. look that way. Okay. So it's a little less painful than taking away the imaginary sagittal planes and frontal planes, right? Okay. So so the the one thing that the, that you have to recognize is 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 our human structure is all based on helical angles. So it's a it's a spiral. Okay. We are we are just a series of spirals. If you go all the way down to the smallest collagen fiber, it is a spiral helical orientation. On the larger scale, you are a spiral helical orientation, okay? So under those circumstances, <clears throat> there would be no front, back, side, side, okay? There's only, which is why I only talk about one plane. And I can take that one away too, if you really wanted to, I could take that one off the plate, okay? But I won't do that because I, I know it's really painful, okay? But the way that, the, the way that helices work is, is when, they, when they compress, 
right? They, they turn inward on themselves. And so the spirals will, will overlap and they will compress and they will push down. They will result in a downward force. That's internal rotation. So internal rotation is down, okay? External rotation then by opposition is as this spiral expands, it goes up. And so it moves away from earth. So what we have is if I'm turning inward, I'm going down. If I'm turning outward, I'm going up. So when we talk about propulsion, so propulsion, um, the, the way we move through space, we only go forward, right? So that's propulsion, okay? But we also have to apply forces into the ground. And then, so that's why the IR bias is always in existence through the propulsive phase of, of anything that we're doing, because we have to push, we have to push down because everything else is pushing up to meet us, right? That, that's, what is it, Newton's third law, right? Mm -hmm. So equal and opposite. So, so that's the, the, the true definition for me for internal rotation is, is a force application downward. And then, and then for the, for the external rotation, it is, is the expansion upward. So it's, so it's down, compress, up, expand. Got it. Okay. Huge. And well, then... I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's huge, but it, but it's coherent. The, the, the goal is, is to, is to make it coherent. Right. So, so everything, everything matches. It's like, so here's your structure. Here's how that structure behaves. What, what's the rule. And so, so that's how I'm looking at it. Yes. And could you, could you expand just a little bit that that's not the, that's not the right word, but could, could we, could we talk more about the way that internal rotation affects the, the helix and and the way that external rotation affects the helix. Cause I'm just, I'm trying to visualize that. I know that collagen is like a three, three strand structure that right. kind of okay. wraps together. Real simple, real simple. Take a, take a, a towel, a wet towel and wring it out. Which way do you, which way does it, does it tighten as you twist it? Yes. Okay. So as it tightens, it compresses. And that's what squeezes the water out, right? So, so it's compressing the space. So the water has to go somewhere, can't stay in the towel, has to go outside the towel. Okay, that's internal rotation. So as you twist the towel tighter and tighter and tighter, there's greater and greater compression, okay? And it's moving inward, right? Internal rotation, okay? It's becoming denser. There's less space inside of it, more space outside of it. It becomes dense. It goes down. So if I take something that is that is very, very dense and I put it in a pool of water, it sinks because it is more dense than, than the surrounding um, fluid, right? Okay. Yep. If yep. I take something, if I take something that is less dense, okay, even if it weighs the same, if I, if I take something that's less dense and, and it has more surface area, it, it could potentially float, right? Okay, so if I unring the towel, now I, I am allowing space to go to, to, to be created within the towel itself, and that is the expansive, that is external rotation. Okay. So that's uh, where sponge is another great example. So, full, full sponge of water, I squeeze it out, right? I compress it, I squeeze the water out, the water has to go outside. But if I put the sponge underwater and I release it, it sucks it back in, right? So then it expands. Same rules. So it seems like it's more of a, it's more a, of a, I mean, this isn't exact, but it's more like external rotation is just, it's just pulling my body inward kind of exit. No, no, it's, external it's rotation is expansion. It's, it's sorry, 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 internal rotation that, yeah. So it's more squeezing my body inward. It is. Um, it's the exactly same way that, okay. 
And, yeah. and so any of the, uh, any, any global representation of internal rotation would be squeezing things inward and that's why that's, so, so, so two strategies to move one plane, two strategies, expansion, compression, one plane transverse. Right. Because right. it's all, it's all rotations. It's all rotations. So, so, so the thing that, and, and the reason that, that why I take away these, these other straight planes is because for instance, say if I'm reaching straight forward, <clears throat> okay. I reach forward and people say that, oh, you're moving in the imaginary sagittal plane. It's just, they, they say it's a straight plane. The only way that you move through that space is to create rotations. And then the resultant of, of my hand or arm being stable in a straight line is, is a, a, a production or cancellation of rotations that allows me to stay in that line. That's why that plane doesn't exist. There is no plane. Okay. We have those terms to have a conversation. Right. But the reality is not that those straight planes are there. The problem is that people are, are expressing these ideas as if those straight planes are reality. Yeah. And, and we are somehow fixed in them because we talk about we talk about humans being three dimensional or four. I would prefer four dimensional because we got to get we got to get the time factors in there. Right. The space right. time. Right. But but point being is is that we aren't we are never moving. We are never moving in a straight plane. So let's not talk about them. Let's, let's, let's actually speak a little bit closer to reality, which is everything is a turn. Everything has a, a compressive element or an expansive element to produce the resultant, right? And what we see is that resultant. And then if we need to give it a name to have a conversation, I'm okay with that, but let's not express ideas as if that's what's really happening because that's what screws up the math when they, when they try to calculate forces. That's what screws up interventions when people think that I got to push you into that straight line. And it's like, well, how did that person push themselves into that straight line? Did they ER or did they IR? And then people get all confused and they say, well, that's an IR position. It's like, no, it's not. You're using ER or IR to get there. And then we, we are concerned about how you did it because under some circumstances, if you do it a certain way, it works really, really well. And if you do it another way, it hurts. Yeah. And then yeah. that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. So on my end, I get the people that they, they come to see me and they go, Bill, it hurts. And then they come to see you and they say, they say, Andrew, I can't get into that position. And you say, here's how you're going to do it. Right. And I, yes. And I think that it's, it leads to a lot of misconceptions um, just right. at a very broad level uh, right. when it comes to exercise. And right. to that point, um, for myself and for a lot of trainers and therapists out there. Uh, and I, I thought of this because of the coffee and coaches call this past week, where yeah. uh, you were talking about the, the external rotation exercise, right? And how you can basically do an IR um, to get that to happen. You yep. can create a squeeze to make that happen. Yep. Do you think that there are any particularly sort of bastardized examples where people are saying it's external rotation, but it's internal rotation or oh. vice versa? Always. Right. Always. Always. Right. It, okay. Just simple measurement, simple measurement. 
Um, and this is this is one of those great examples because it's really easy for people to find. So anybody that's that's watching this or listening to this can actually do this. All you gotta do is you go to you go to Google, okay, and you 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 put in the the search uh, the search bar um, Olympic weightlifting snatch, and you look at a series of photos of people sitting in the deepest possible squat with the barbell up overhead, okay. And then people will see the knees being positioned away from midline. And so right away, everybody says external rotation. But these people are producing force into the ground at a very high level. What you have is people that are orienting themselves into a position where they can access a space, which we would call so it's external rotation orientation so they can produce force into the ground. Their hip joint, if we were to look at the hip joint, the, the, the relative position of the hip joint, it's internally rotated because it has to be, because it has to be pushing down into the ground. But because of the amount of compression that they have to use to hold a weight overhead in that position, there is no way, there's no way that they have the, the normal uh, capability to access external rotation because you don't produce force in external rotation. You can capture a position in external rotation. You can demonstrate velocity in, dem in, in external rotation, but you don't produce force well in external rotation. It, it is limited. So I need high levels of internal rotation capabilities under those circumstances. And so again, it's like, this is one of those things that, that by rule, see the rule was moving away from midline. You said it, you said it at the very beginning, moving away from midline, it's external rotation, moving towards is intro rotation. It's like, it's like, we have to look at this, this differently because it creates a massive amount of confusion because of, of what the reality is. The reality is that we had to push down, right? For our right. internal rotation to produce force. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and so, so people mismeasure, but, but people mismeasure things. They go, oh, you have this much external rotation when the reality is, but the position is actually internally rotated. Right. Well, and even in the Olympic weightlifting example, it seems like if you look at the hip, it's, it's squeezing inward. So it's, it it's more, it is. right. And there's a mutated right. sacrum. So that, that even seems like an example where it's just, you have to look more proximally um, right. to see what's happening. Right. Um, well, so, so hang on, you, you, you hit on something really important here. I, I apologize for interrupting, but you hit on something really important is we have to look at this systemically. We can't, we can't look at a piece and then make a decision. You have to look at the relationships between all of the, all of the pieces, right? So to speak, right. even though you're one big piece, right? Okay. That, but that, that's really important. And I'm, I'm so glad you, you actually said it out loud because, because it, it, it people are making decisions thinking that they're they're measuring one thing and that's impossible right right so, and and that would be probably the the biggest mistake uh in examples where where we're looking at what appears to be happening versus what is actually happening is that we're looking too distally rather than looking at where is the rib cage, where is the pelvis? They're looking through, they're looking through a very narrow lens, right? Okay, let me, let me take you back because I, I know you remember this. Remember when I made you stand up on one, of the, on one of the coffee and coaches conference calls and we did a hip thingy where I had yeah. to turn the hip inward and outward and you turned it far enough that you felt your spine start to turn too. Yeah. That's always happening, just to what degree? Right. So, so again, we have to, we have to start looking at this more systemically. We have to understand what the relationships are rather than 
defaulting into this looks like this, the straight plane thing, right? And if it looks like this and I turn you this way, then I am measuring ER, IR, whatever it is. When the reality is, it's like, you got to think about how did you even get into that position? What movement took place that put you in that space? See the difference? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Very cool. Do you have anything quick? Uh, you know, I think we'll just table it right there. It's a good time yeah. to cut it I was off. Say, we, we had about 20 seconds. So yeah, it doesn't seem like we can get too deep with 20 seconds. So no worries, man. Okay. Awesome. All right. I'll see you on IFS to you and then on, on the coffee call. Okay. Yes. Very helpful. Thank you. All right, brother. Good to see you. See you. It's like, that's why we have people that are great accountants and not great basketball players is because we do have people that they recognize very early on. It's like, okay, I just don't have these physical capabilities. Doesn't mean I can't enjoy playing sports. I'm just not going to be in the NBA. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Well, Today's Wednesday. That means that tomorrow's Thursday, which means at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, the coffee and coaches conference call will be taking place as usual. Um, always a great group of people, always great questions. Um, we get more and more every week, which is great. Um, so uh, please take the opportunity to join us. I realize it's early in the morning, but sometimes you have to brace the struggle. Okay. Uh, today's Q&A comes from Hamish. And so uh, Hamish had a question in regards to how gradients apply to movement. So we can do nothing without these gradients. And so we took this concept and we applied it to the each to the extremes of my two archetypes, the white ISA and the narrow ISA archetypes. And we re related it to how this will influence performance related outcomes. So I think this is gonna be a very useful call um, for a lot of people because I know that, that many still have questions about this gradient concept. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I do not delete it. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Don't forget that all of these videos eventually get posted up to the YouTube channel. So if you're if you're looking for something that has shown up in the past, like the impingement video is really popular, um, the push-up video is really popular. So go to YouTube, subscribe to the YouTube channel um, so you can get access to those as well. Everybody have a great Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. We are recording. The timer has started. Hamish, what is your question, young man? Okay, so I'm thinking about just the, the gradient within the model, um, how that's represented as we move. So... Uh, if we look, I'm thinking like a simple, simple representation as the uh, difference is the rise over the run, but then how's that um, sort of related to pressures or pressure management within the wide versus the narrow archetype um, and as they become, say, uh, more compressed. So okay. what do we, yeah. So, so let's, let's, let's speak very simply first and foremost about, about the gradient concept, okay? In all of the universe, nothing can happen unless there's a gradient. So, so that's step one. It's like, that's the thing yeah. that everybody's gonna, gotta have to grasp because, because literally if there's, if there's no differential, if there's no increasing um, element in, in gradient, we can't do anything, okay? At, at one end of that spectrum, we've got this low pressure 
e-centric bias representation in, in the narrow archetype. And we have the opposing strategy of, of this higher pressure, wide ISA a bias, okay? And so thank you for saying rise over run because I don't think I've heard that in, since uh, freshman geometry. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I don't know if anybody knows what you mean it, it's it's the we're, we're looking at basically two hypotenuse uh when we're talking about the isas right and so so yeah. your, wide, your wide has a longer run than it does a rise and vice versa for the for the narrows and so it stands to reason that that because of those those helical angles are going to behave differently and so and you're absolutely correct and so when we're talking about activities the the greatest excursion and the greatest compression lies directly along that, that helical angle. And so we have to attend to those if that's the goal, if we wanna stay on this maximal excursion. And so when we're talking about specific activities, if I was, to, if I was just to say simply, a wide ISA is gonna be a better bench presser and a narrow ISA is gonna be a better overhead presser. And people will say, well, why is that? It's like, because th those two lifts approximate the, the orientation of the ISA much more effectively. So um, the, the wider ISA individual has a lower potential for, a, for directly overhead reach. They have to create more compensatory activity, more strategy to get their arm into the same position overhead that somebody with a narrow word. So we always have to take that into consideration. I think in the, in the email you were talking about uh, a chopping activity or something? Yeah. Correct. Yeah, and then... That was, I was thinking with that as far as like I'm um, so how how does the the like the gradient then affect um, the positioning of the feet so start, like the the width of the stagger and then also how it correlates with the um, say like a a um, the chopping angle right. uh, so in in relation to the degree of the um, say like oblique angle of the pelvis. Yep. Okay, you're so so you're absolutely on point here. We have to attend to that again. We first have to decide what, what our intention is, and under most circumstances, where we're sorry, it's my dog. That's right. Under most circumstances, um, when we're trying to recapture movement, yeah. Again, the greatest excursion is directly along this helical angle. So, so somebody with a wider ISA is going to be on a much flatter angle for for any of those those types of activities. And then we have to respect the fact that th the depth of our stance is also going to be an influence. And so when we talk about staggers, we have two feet here. And if I'm staggering my stance, it's like my narrow ISA, I can, I can put here because they have much greater potential for a much tighter turn. Whereas my, my wider ISA, again, if, if this is a, a parallel stance, I'm going to offset it this way, but I'm going to bias them more in, in a, a side to side stance. Because again, that's where that helical angle is going to fall on, on its greatest excursion. Yeah. So it's less turn, right? So it's it's not as yeah. steep an angle. And that doesn't mean that we can't get them to a steeper angle eventually. It just means that their bias um, will prevent us from going to any form of extreme if our goal is to recapture ranges of motion, at least yeah. at, at the onset. It's like once we've established some measure of relative motion, we have greater potential for turns. But but by by the archetype, the one the the narrow bias is always going to have a greater greater potential for turn. They have a much yeah. tighter tighter helical orientation that's going to allow that to happen. And then say if you get like a narrow that's end game, is that that's like that's going to shrink for them as well, right? Because they haven't got as much space to okay. move into. 
this is so this is a great this is a great question and you used the perfect word you said shrink okay so here's what's going to happen so so i have this representation of how much turning that i have available to me based on based on my my helical orientation so again we have a much much larger um, excursion of rotation in a narrow, whereas with a wide, and I'm using my hands because this is a really high tech call, right? So, yeah. so my narrow is kind of like this. So, so this would represent how much turn that we have. And for my narrow, so there, or for my wide rather, their excursion is going to be going to be much narrower. Okay. Yeah. Now, and that's that's literally just a structural bias. Now let's superimpose the compressive strategies on top of them. So, so the superficial strategies are anterior and posterior, and so they're going to bring the themselves closer and closer together. So what we get on a narrow is we're gonna get somebody that's gonna to start to get smushed, right, front to back. And so right away, I've stolen some of their ability to, to create that that turn, okay? And, and so again, um, as, I've, as I've said, it's like I need that ER space to produce IR inside of it well you're knit, you're taking away their external rotation space so so right away i've i've limited the excursion in both internal and external rotation by superimposing the con compressive strategies when i get yeah. to end game when i get to end game there is there is much less turning capability under all circumstances whether we're talking about a wide or a narrow okay because the the wide bias started with a with a much lesser degree of turn you're going to see a much more significant deficit there but but you're going to see a significant deficit in both of them yeah and i think this like just as far as trying to restore relative motion i ran into a lot of problem or like a lot of walls as far as um you know not respecting the activity in certain um, certain tissues when doing um, certain activities um so like for instance, like trying to get like um, space in the pelvis, and then using like you know hamstrings to stabilize the pelvis, which, right. would, which would be you know overcoming um, action, but then and then sort of that's causing interference with um, with restoring that motion. Correct. Now, the thing that you have to be careful of, especially when you get towards the these end game representations where you have that posterior lower compression, if if. And again, I always talk about getting that orientation first because you're not gonna be able to restore relative motions until you do. You have to have, again, you have to have that space for you to re recapture those. If I'm looking at, at end game strategies, you know you've got anterior orientations under those circumstances, right? So you've got to bring yeah. that back first, but you gotta be really, really careful how you bring that back. So especially, especially yeah. with, with your narrow ISAs, you know, people say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tilt, I'm gonna posteriorly orient the the pelvis with the with the with the muscular that's going to you know typically do that and yeah. under many circumstances what you're going to get is you're going to get a compensatory posterior orientation which means the whole pelvis posterior orients you don't recapture the relative motions and you end up creating more spine um, movement yeah. the, the relative movement within the pelvis so you got to be really really careful and this is why i'm a big big fan of the asymmetrical activities under those circumstances because under that circumstance i can create that space so when we think about especially end game narrows so end game narrows start in a deficit because of the shape of the of the the uh, diaphragm whether we're talking pelvis or they're talking thorax we don't have any space in that that posterior aspect of the pelvis and so that's why you typically see this this um, posterior orientation versus relative motion recapture. The asymmetrical activities create this, this opposing strategy on either side of the pelvis, and then that's a much easier way to recapture that, that relative motion. Right, yeah. And then that's going to, again, open up the um, or increase the gradient on their excursion. 
and there you go. And now it's so, yeah. so and, and so so there you go. So this is what you're doing. You're actually restoring the, the capacity for a gradient to exist. Because the greater and greater squeeze that I superimpose, I'm taking away gradient, right? So so think yeah. of like the most extreme possible case, right? So you compress everything as hard as you possibly could. If there's no gradient, there's no movement. Yeah. Right. And, and then how that'd be like the like your greatest output against resistance. Right, like think yeah. about like the heaviest squat you've ever done, and you lifted it, and you just stopped dead, you know, right at the sticky point and move. Yeah, yeah. The gradient, and, and until you release, until you release the pressure, and then you go the wrong yeah. way. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. And and then um, if we're doing okay for time, is that so? Why we see like some people say they someone that presents with the the, the pylon um skeleton like skeleton, why they will only get so far when you're trying to restore movement. Um, and they have, may have a lot of interference because they've been pushed down harder than someone else, they, which they is are. in the opposite. Absolutely, and then, and this is just this is this is simple physics. You've got somebody with a yeah. with a velocity and and turbulent motion that's going downward, right? So oh, yeah. so I mean they 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 sort of lost the genetic lottery when it comes to experience <laughs> inverted. Well, it, and it's just the unfortunate yeah. truth. But but again, it's like it's like that's why mm. we have people that are great accountants and not great basketball players is because we do have people that they recognize very early on. It's like, okay, I just don't have these physical capabilities. Doesn't mean I can't enjoy playing sports. I'm just not gonna be in the NBA, right? Yeah. Um, and so you know they get to do other stuff, which is what we need too. But but the reality is 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 that they they have um, genetically predisp predispositions to get stuck to the ground because the literally their internal downward velocity is greater. And so, yeah. so right away, you, you, you have so much more to overcome. And unfortunately, just developing force production is insufficient because in many of these cases, um, if you do increase force production, because there are some people that do this physical structure that can get very, very strong, they tend to not be very explosive. They tend to not be able to leave the ground because they need so much time to create the force that, you know, again, when we talk about the most explosive people, they can create extreme forces over very short spans of time. And then that's where they get to demonstrate velocities. That's where you get to see the guy with the 40. Well, I, I got to speak in inches here, brother, but 40. Yeah, that's right. 42 inch vertical jump. See, I'm an American. We don't, we can't think yeah. metric system, even though it makes more sense. Um, you know, but yeah. again, that, that's just, that's just the, the genetic reality. But that's why, that's why I think that, that when I, when I put together the, the representations of the archetypes and we started looking at the configurations, it becomes such a powerful and useful tool because you know, right away where you got to go. Yeah, no, definitely. That makes, um, yeah, it makes, makes a lot more sense. Um, I think that's kind of that, that's really all I had. Okay, you get you got all, like over. you got you got like a minute. Come on, man. Okay, okay, cool. So how about <laughs> real quick? How about how how does that play out when you've got um, early and late stance uh, late stance representation, regardless of the archetype that have bunions? Okay, so is that too deep? Okay, so hang on. So what we, we let's let's just say what a bunion actually is. So a bunion is. Yep. Actually quest okay so we have we have the the proximal segment so we're going to talk about the first metatarsal the first metatarsal is twisted 
twisted from ER to IR. So, so that's what that's what the the first metatarsal is doing, and then the the phalange is rotating in the opposing direction. You're going to see this repeated all the way up into every iteration under those circumstances. Yeah. This is somebody that's trying to apply a greater force into the ground, so they're trying to increase their ability to produce maximum propulsion into the ground, and so under the circumstances, think about this. If I have the double whammy, so let's just say that I have this really wide pelvis and I'm accelerating into the ground, um, I got to push harder and harder. I got to push longer and longer, right? To to, yeah. to create the the ability to, to resist getting crushed by gravity. So under those circumstances, you're typically going to see a foot that's going to be traditionally represented as being more pronated. You're going yeah. you're gonna to see the people that are applying more and more force into the ground. So you're going to see it at the knee. So you'll see the You'll see the internally rotated femur at the knee. You're going to see what has been traditionally called as a valgus, which is not a valgus. It's just another rotation. It's the same thing that's happening in the foot during the bunion. And you've got somebody that's pushing really, really hard into the ground all the time, which is why you see that representation. So that's what that is. Are you more likely to see it under these circumstances? Absolutely. I think so. And you'll see it in any number of representations, but it's always associated with somebody that's putting a lot of force into the ground for prolonged periods. Like I said, otherwise there's no reason to do it. Yeah, for sure. Cause I, I remember on um, one of the earlier calls, you mentioned um, like saying that presentation, it's someone trying to push, they're pushing off that side. Absolutely. So it's, that's uh, like all the things, the, the kickstand you use the, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, in, in, um, I, I can't remember if we posted some extreme examples up on iFastU, but you'll see these wicked yeah. you'll see you'll see one foot that looks like the most extreme supinated foot on one side and then the most extreme yeah. of pronation with the, with the bunion on the on the other side as well. And again, th those those people are are they're fighting some serious rotational forces, but they're doing it for prolonged periods, which is why you see that adaptation. So that's because um, I remember on the last I first uh, you called when um, yep. you were talking about twisting the bones um, and yeah meant, like mentioned I was with George and you mentioned um, just like dampening forces. Yep. So that's kind of what they're trying to do. Yeah. So you're going to use you're going to use whatever you have available to you in, so, in under under most circumstances we're going to be utilizing connective tissues right because that's where our, yep. that's how we move my friend we 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 move. Yep. With issues and so that's where you're going to see all these adaptations absolutely all right man cool. great questions thank you nice. so much for, for, for doing this i appreciate you i'll see you i got an ifasu call tomorrow uh afternoon based on when we're doing this one so, okay. so I'll, I'll see you then okay yeah it's three in the morning so it might be tough but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right well it'll be recorded thanks, all right man i'll yeah. see you uh, thanks bill see ya bye you know that that's why you get the, like the hawk is it hawkins kennedy is that the is this is it this one this one yeah yeah hawkins kennedy that's why you get a positive hawkins kennedy is the posterior lower compressive strategies there frederick how's the french press this morning or this afternoon for you it was great it's afternoon it's almost uh 1 p.m okay. so it's my second coffee of the day oh wow well i feel special then <laughs> um i have a question about a client um she is uh, in her 50s, three weeks post-surgical, left shoulder, and they removed some bone spurs and all of these things they do when they find an impingement. Yes. And uh, yeah, she, she came in um, with a limited range of motion everywhere, pain-related, I guess. And now, three weeks after, I did some um, 
I guess, manual stuff to assist her in feeling things better and moving things better. And um, yesterday she came in and she said to me, yeah, I was training again and I'm just doing a shoulder uh, bridge again. And I was like, wait a minute, isn't that the thing where you put your hands just behind your back and press your whole body up? So she was doing like, this like backbend. Yeah, like a backbend. Yeah. So three weeks post-surgical and I was like, wait a minute, how is she able to do that? And then I was measuring her again and she had like pretty good external rotation. Um, she's a narrow ISA, if I recall correctly, but her flexion uh, stops a little or it wants to turn um, when I'm doing your test uh, uh -huh. a little bit above 90 degrees. Uh -huh. And she has a very flat uh, thoracic spine uh -huh. and this overly flexed um, cervical, cervical thoracic junction kind of yeah. thing going on. So, <laughs> I, I, yeah, so I was thinking she's probably creating the space to do that and that's why i don't get her uh, or she has no good shoulder flexion measurement because she is uh, just turning away from that but that makes her able to do that three weeks post-surgical because she is creating this space so um i was wondering or several questions first question is uh, is this maybe possible that her um, presentation of her spine and where she is creating space led her to this problem. And um, what are the um, <clears throat> steps, how she got there, you know? Because I'm, I'm seeing quite a lot of people with this flat thoracic spine representation, sure. but they are also, some are uh, wide and some are narrow. Yeah. So I was wondering how how much uh, or what are the steps? How, how do people get there? You know? Okay. So, so let's, let's just look, you said she was an arrow. Yeah. Okay. So let's just look at an extreme representation of that. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so right away she's, she's in, in uh, a, a little bit of pickle based on the diaphragm shape that does not allow uh, a lot of inter we're talking about internally now. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the, the compensatory strategy of the diaphragm does not create uh, like a, a posterior lower expansion in the lung mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. of the diaphragm shape. So she's going to be anteriorly expanded. It's going to mm -hmm. shove her forward. She shoves herself back. Okay. So she, she, she mm -hmm. pushes her chest backwards and then she falls backwards and then she pushes herself forwards and then she pushes mm -hmm. herself backwards and she pushes herself forwards, right? So she just goes boom, 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 boom. And every one of these strategies is an, ex an exhalation compressive strategy. But, but mm -hmm. the advantage of that, okay, is that she creates this orientation so that she's turning her, her, her glenoid laterally, mm -hmm. right? So that creates an ER space, okay? Mm -hmm. It's not gonna allow a whole lot of relative motion to occur. So chances are she's gonna get, for every element of ER that she gains, she gives up some IR, mm -hmm. right? And so where she's probably doing this back bend is she's got this orientation, like crazy orientation into ER, right? And then that gives her just enough. So she creates IR through the extremity so she can balance on her hands, right? But I think you're correct that, that, her ability to do that 
may very well have led to the fact that she ended up with this so-called shoulder impingement because it requires a tremendous amount of posterior compression hmm. to achieve that position. So think about it. It's like hmm. the, if she's in a back bend with her hands on the ground and her feet on the ground. So she's this inverted U-shaped, right? Okay. If, if she was a tube, which she is, she's a tube and I bend the tube and the underside of the tube is fully compressed here. And then there's expansion on the other side, right? You see it? Mm -hmm. And so, so all of her ER measures in, in a relative sense should be limited. Now she's creating an orientation that, but there's Misha thinking again, it, because she's creating an orientation, right? To, to capture the ER position. Okay. Uh, okay. She, so she's literally pinning her scapulae together yeah. Yeah. and pushing it forward. Well, if I push it forward, it, it makes this look like it's, it's not really expanded. She, she's, she's pushing it forward to create mm -hmm. a space. So she created a shape, right? In, in a very compressed state, but that's how much compression she has relative to the, to the anterior. So chances are you got somebody that's going to have like a low pressure abdominal um, strategy because she's got to let it go somewhere to make the U shape. Mm -hmm. Right. She's probably not doing it through her sternum. She's squeezing in her sternum. So she's going to push stuff towards her gut. So her, her, her abdomen is going to probably be where she's going to give way the most. But do you see what I'm getting at as far as the strategy to create this shape? Yes, no. Um, I hope so. I think squeeze, she's- Squeeze your scapulae together. Pinch them together. That's her ER. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's the reason why she has like no IR at the shoulder, right? So her, her, her ER is magnified by the fact that she is just turning her scapula backwards, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So um, I guess that's why she uh, um, regained some range of motion when I um, I stole that from you, the um, side-lying technique to m mobilize the dorsal rostral area. And this has worked uh, really wonders uh, in yeah, several nice. clients. Yeah, yeah nice. it's a great one. Yeah, but it's still based off of um, orientation and not like regaining a, a whole lot of um, relative motion and expansion. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So from a intervention standpoint, um, I was thinking I'll give her some expansion and space back there so she can actually uh, have some movement and some relative motions. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned the... Um, <clears throat> the abs where she is releasing. So is the strategy to expand somewhere where she is compressed first and then try to see somewhere else and do some other stuff like with the, um, I mean, there's, there are chances that she's compressed somewhere else. Correct? Oh, she's, she's very like, if she's laying on the table, I think she's going to be the representation representation that we we're talking about before where her legs just kind of fall out to the, to the yeah. side in ER. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so, so you're going to have to create some, you're going to have to have some anterior compression to create posterior expansion. 
So you got to mm-hmm. be careful here, but it's where you create it. That's going to be, be important. So let's think about this though. So did you, have you seen my impingement video on YouTube? I don't think so. <laughs> maybe, 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 but I'm, I'm not sure I've watched dozens of videos. So three, three, in, three impingements of the shoulder. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Seen that. Yeah. Okay. So, so chances are, chances are she may have all of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. But, but when you think about like reaching overhead and things like that, you need to build them sequentially. So her, so her posterior lower compressive strategy, because you've got a limitation in shoulder flexion, that tells you you've got a posterior lower compressive strategy, which yeah. means that as she is elevating her arm, she never had any external rotation there available to her. So her mm-hmm. spine is already turning away from that arm, which means that she's, she's raising her arm in, in what we would consider internal rotation. And then she hits it's the, you know, that that's why you get the, like the Hawk. Is it Hawkins Kennedy? Is that the, is this, is it this one? This one. Yeah. Yeah. Hawkins Kennedy. That's why you get a positive Hawkins Kennedy is the posterior lower compressive strategies there. Okay. Right. And so chances yeah. are she was diagnosed with an impingement in some way, shape or form under those circumstances. So somewhere in 90 degrees, whether it was abduction, which would be dorsal rostral compression. Right. Um, and, and so if she's got lower, if she's got posterior lower, if she's got dorsal rostral compression, you've got two, of three impingements for sure. Hmm. Okay. And, and so you're going to have to clean that up first. Okay. Right. Get hmm. a truer, get a truer measure of relative ER, and then you should capture IR at the same time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Yeah. So, so think about, think about, think about what she's capable of doing, right. With this back bend thingy. And now hmm. let's directly oppose it. So, so she's got a low pressure belly, okay? And I need posterior lower expansion first. Mm-hmm. Where can you put her that you capture all that at once? Prone position. So, yes. So let's take her, her back bend. Yeah. And let's flip her over. So she's expanding the front side, compressing the back side. How can we compress the front side, expand the back side? Quadruped? Yeah, real simple. Real yeah. simple. Real yeah. simple. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. and it'll be like a big slam dunk for you because if she's if she's effective and you're and you're the world's greatest coach, which I think you are, then um, you will you will notice that you will pick up that early shoulder flexion. Mm-hmm. That'll be your that'll be your first measure to come back that will tell you that you're being effective. Because if you can do that, so the cool thing about quadruped, not only are you gonna get the posterior lower expansion, you got a really good shot at getting an up pump handle. And so right there, you just took her from arm at the side to getting above shoulder level. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So, so quadruped's really powerful for her, assuming it's not painful, assuming that she's able to you know, capture the positions that you want. Hmm. cool awesome thank you very much real quick if hmm. she doesn't tolerate the weight bearing which I, I i would think that if she can do a back bend that she can probably handle the weight bearing but if she can't handle the weight bearing just drop her down to her side so so uh so all fours is is uh uh like a lazy bear mm-hmm. okay there's there's a really lazy bear position which is if you put yourself in quadruped mm-hmm. 
and just fall over to the side. <laughs> okay. That's a really lazy bear, but it's the yeah. same position. It's the same position. Yeah. It's just less, less gravity than you had before. And it gives you an opportunity to turn. So, so that's okay. where I would start yeah. looking at that. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. Thank you very much. This, this is one of these dirty little things that the table makes a great constraint, but you got to understand how you're moving on the table when it, when it happens. Because again, when you have all these asymmetrical measures and you see these, th this one measure where both sides look exactly the same, they're not the same. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Man, it's been a great week. Flew by, was very, very busy this week. Got a busy weekend coming up. Looking forward to that. So let's dig into today's Q&A, which is another segment from yesterday's Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Uh, this is with Alex, and Alex had a great question um, that referred to uh, how we need to look at our table tests. And, and I'm, I'm very fond of, of using the, the, the term dirty measures. And when I say dirty, it's the what you think you're measuring, you're not you're not measuring. So the structural reductionist model would say that if you're doing hip range of motion tests, that you're testing hip range of motion. And I would argue that you're testing internal and external rotation. What we need to understand though is is how that is represented and then what is possible as far as creating these measures using the table as the constraint. So that's the value of the table that you need to understand it. It is a constraint to measure against. Um, but uh, we went through some stuff with Alex. We did a little demo. Um, which, which hopefully is, is, is going to be helpful for you as well. So you can actually see some of these, these uh, representations in standing that you might see actually with somebody laying on the table for comparison purposes. So again, hope it's useful. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute uh, consultation, um, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. And we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Um, I think that's going to be it for today. The podcast will be up on Sunday, as usual. Um, don't forget to go to the YouTube channel and subscribe so you can get access to all of the past videos um, that go way back. And um, have a terrific weekend, and I will see you next week. This is loosely related off of what Zach was just talking about. It seems like there's potentially a pretty general path of motion that the pelvis takes as it as it moves forward to try and um, try and get IR maybe I would guess because uh, well, I've heard you talk in the past about one second sorry when it tries to get IR scratch that from the record for a second um, so it might like orient <laughs> on an oblique and then move forward until it can't move forward anymore and then move to the right um, <laughs> is that like a pretty defined progression in space time of how that occurs or it is there because I'm having a hard time identifying when it when you're supposed to push left versus come okay. back versus orient so, so how do you know how do you know how far in one direction that, that that you would so let's just say side to side? What would be your distinguishing characteristic to tell you that you're you're really pushed over to one side? Um I'm actually not sure. I mean, visually to a certain degree, you can see it. Okay. But I don't have good table measure representations. Okay. Um, do you mind standing up for a sec? No. <clears throat> so just stand with, you know, feet hip width and that kind of thing. Is that working? 
Yeah, that's, that's you're upside down, but you know it'll still work for me. <laughs> so, so if you're if your weight bearing is even, okay, let's just say you're sort of in the middle, okay. Now shift your shift your whole center of gravity. Don't lose your heels, but but shift your whole center of gravity as far forward as you can. Okay. And, and drive your pelvis forward, not just your, your chest and your head. Yeah. So, okay. You feel all that stuff on the backside starting to get active? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So right now, both of your hips are turning out into ER. Would you agree? Yeah. This is, so this is posterior lower. Yeah. Okay. Now stay there. Okay. And then go a little bit to the right. Wow. Yeah, and so you're going to feel a little bit more there, right? On, on that the, side. On the, on the left. Well, you're going to feel it on both sides, but 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 let's think about what what yeah, like so it, the further you go, you're going to feel you're going to feel more and more muscle activity sort of pick up on one side and then change on the other. You see? Oh, that? sure, yeah. Okay. So, if you were if you were laying on the table, okay? And you push straight forward like we did when we when we started, just go yeah. straight forward first. What would be your expected measures in regards to like the early range hip hip measures? You'd start to lose it. You'd start to lose what straight leg raise and early ER. Yeah, yeah, right. And chances are, if you took them to ninety degrees for a traditional hip measure, you wouldn't have IR either, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, so go forward first and then go to the right and then go a little bit more to the right and then go a little bit more to the right and then and you'll feel the difference sort of coming at you, but stay forward. Yeah, you go. <laughs> um, can, you, can you see how, can you see how certain measures will, will, the deficit in certain measures will get magnified the farther and farther you go in one direction? Potentially. So in this situation, would I be losing left IR? Yeah. Gaining right, right, right IR? Uh, if you're, it depends on how far forward you are. So stick your butt out behind you. Yeah. And then do the same shift over. So which one do you think, do you, do you feel how you can shift farther into that hip? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, so, so more forward, losing more IR on the right. There you go. Feel the difference? Oh, big time. Yeah. See, it's not so hard. But now you just gotta, you just gotta, so you look at your chessboard and you say, oh, he's doing, he's standing in his kitchen and he's, he's pushing his hips forward and then he shoved them in one direction or the other. And it's like, how far forward did he go? And then, so your measures will, the, the measures just slowly drop off and you go, oh, wow, I'm really losing this. He's gotta be so far forward in this direction. And it's like, which one is the biggest, biggest impact that, that would be the biggest limiting factor. And it's like, Oh, if he's like way over that way and he's way forward. So I got a guy that, that if I was doing, tr you know, traditional tests and he, and he's got like five degrees of hip abduction and he's got no early flexion, he's got a lousy straight leg raise, right? He's way over to the right. Right. So which one is the greater magnification? It's like, oh, I got to bring you back to center first, then move you back, and then I can roll you onto your left side. Gotcha. You see it? As a, as a general default, if someone is, is pretty far forward and not symmetrical, you're probably assuming you have to bring them back to center 
towards the left. Again, I, I would I would try to have I would have a, a reason to do that, but but um, chances are you're going to have um, like the, the 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 more forward someone goes, whether they're deviated, you're gonna you're gonna see all your measures start to drop off mm -hmm. in those early ranges because there's there's just no there's no eccentric orientation available under those circumstances. But but what you may see is like a distinguishing difference where. So let's just say that you've got um, you got a straight leg raise on the right that's 45 degrees, and you got a straight leg raise on the left that's 20. That might be the thing that distinguishes your decision making. Mm -hmm. And you can say, oh, okay, I know where this guy is, right? And now because you've got a greater limitation on, on one side than the other, that one probably needs to be resolved first. Otherwise, you're just going to keep pushing him in that direction. Right. You see the so I, yeah. So I used to have a patient who was like, you could see the right oblique on her. Uh, she had pretty minimal left hip IR. She had like maybe like five degrees left hip IR, 20 degrees left uh, right hip IR. Uh -huh. um, and if I recall, like reasonably symmetrical ER. Awesome. I just had one of those too. Uh -huh. uh, it would be more helpful if, if I was still with her, but. So is this a situation in which she's medically forward, side to side? Okay. It would it be a situation in which actually no, keep going. Let me let me let me let me give you let me give you a few hints. Okay. Chances are you didn't see the same representation in the upper extremity measures. Am I correct? Um, there was more asymmetry in the upper extremity measures than there were in the, in like, so you saw bilateral hip ER matching. Yeah. Reasonably That's impossible, matched. right? Hang on. That's impossible, yeah. isn't it? Based on, based on all your other measures, you're looking at this chessboard and you go, wait a minute, what, how could hip ER be symmetrical and everything else be asymmetrical? Yeah. Okay. That person is laying on the table. The only thing touching on the left side. So, so imagine this. The only thing touching on the left side of the body on the table under those circumstances is the left heel and a little bit of the central occiput. Okay. Mm -hmm. But you picked up her left leg and she lost a point of contact. And then you brought the mass of her leg up over the pelvis and the pelvis fell back to the table. Mm -hmm. And that magnifies ER on the left side. Gotcha. You see it? Yeah. 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 The arm, the arm does not weigh nearly as much as the leg does. And you measure the arm in a little bit different place under most circumstances, unless you're sneaky and you know where to measure and you know where to measure the ERs and IRs differently. Okay. Um, and so it doesn't turn the thorax as much as the pelvis turned when you were making your measurements. So this is, this is one of these dirty little things that the table makes a great constraint, but you got to understand how you're moving on the table when it, when it happens. Because again, when you have all these asymmetrical measures and you see these, this one measure where both sides look exactly the same, they're not the same. It's like you arrived at those measures differently. So this is why you have to account for in every measure, you have to understand what can be contributing to the, to the change. Okay. In that situation, should I be able to 
most of the time visually see that movement of the pelvis if I just pay attention to it. You have to pay attention to it. Yes. And I, I'm really just looking for like a little bit of waiver at a minimum. It, um, so you, you ever have those people that lay on your table and their toes are pointing out towards the, the right and left field? All the time. Okay. What starting position do you think they're in? Forward pelvis jammed through. Yeah. 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 So right away, do you think you're measuring in, in some imaginary, like, you know, straight plane? No. No. So they're already moved, right? The pelvis already moved. And then you're going to bring that, you're going to turn that hip to bring it up into your traditional measurement position. So you already moved the pelvis yourself when you brought them into position. You see it? Yeah. And then you're going to move them back to where they started as you do the measurement. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm pretty positive it's happening, but I don't necessarily see any pelvis movement when I bring them up to 90 degrees. That's why the chessboard is so valuable because you, because the chessboard will tell you because of the relationships of the measures. That's, that's why when you have a coffee cup, like that, that bilateral ER that is symmetrical, that should not be symmetrical. Yeah. That's, that's why the, that's why the coffee cups stand out because you go, man, that one just doesn't fit. And it's like, Oh, wait a minute. That was movement on the table. Right. When you get a, when you get a really big ER measure, right. So it, it looks normal ish or more mm -hmm. and, you get, and you get almost no internal rotation. That's an orientation. There's no other way to do that. Relative motions are both the ER and IR exist at the same time when you have relative motion. There's no way that you can get what appears to be a normal measure of ER or a magnified measure of ER, okay? And no internal rotation without everything moving in one piece. So if I get ER to come back and I get no increase in IR. You have an orientation. I'm, yeah, I'm not doing it right. No, hang on, uh, hang on, unless, hang on. Unless orientation is the goal. That's not fair, okay? You made a change. You just now know what change you made. That might be favorable in certain circumstances. It just means that you didn't finish the job if relative motion is the goal.